episode 28. Welcome to another episode of the Stories of Gumption podcast, conversations with entrepreneurs, creative thinkers, and just really, really impressive people. This episode is brought to you by Sparkle Clean. They are a professional cleaning service in the Champlain Valley. They provide professional and economic cleaning solutions to residential and commercial structures. They specialize in window cleaning, floor care, carpet extraction, auto, and boat detailing. Give them a call at 518-578-2931. They'll hook you up with a free estimate. Like I said, residential and commercial uh, accounts. They do both. Their team is growing. That's Zach and Kate Hoyt of Sparkle Clean. S-P-A-R-K-I-L-K-L-E-E-N. Find them also on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, take away the dashes or the hyphens, and uh, that's how their social media is set up. That's it. 518-578-2931. You are one call away from just overhauling the cleanliness of your space. Trust me. We're also brought to you by Alexander Edwards and Company. Ladies and gentlemen, it's tax season. Okay. Here we are in mid-March, mid-early March of 2020 as we're recording this. And uh, if you haven't gotten your taxes together, now's the time. Now's the time. Alexander Edwards and Company, CPAs, PC. They uh, have been providing common sense solutions to many North Country businesses. Their real-life accounting and tax problems since 1920. That's right. This isn't their first rodeo. They've been in business since 1920. They're a full-service public accounting firm engaged in tax prep, bookkeeping, audits, estate planning, financial planning, and management consultation. Give them a call. They're at 518-563-1600. That's 518-563-1600. They're also located at 47 Dock Street in Plattsburgh. Get your taxes set. Today's episode, man, what a great conversation. Uh, I'm talking with Danielle Howard Ross, and we talk all things motivation. We talk about the art of negotiation, which I think is a critical life skill, but particularly valuable if you're in a uh, career of sales. And then, of course, uh, wouldn't it be a story of gumption episode without some conversation about marathon training and uh, her accomplishing the New York City Marathon on six weeks notice pretty freaking awesome enjoy this episode the stories of gumption podcast gumption defined as initiative aggressiveness resourcefulness courage spunk guts common sense and shrewdness Welcome to the podcast. This is Stories of Gumption with your host, Ryan Lee. Today's guest, everybody, is Danielle Howard Ross. She is the manager of marketing and sales at Platco, volunteer for the United Way, also a volunteer for North Country Veterans Association. Really proud to have you here. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate well, the invite. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. We, uh, I feel like we've crossed paths through LinkedIn for several years, but mm -hmm. never had the chance to meet until just recently. Until we were at the uh, the uh, event at Peru School. 
Oh yeah, what was that? Was the, the um, high, college for every student? But it's yes. not college for every student. Uh, no, it's uh, CFES Pathways. But yes, brilliant pathways. Brilliant pathways. Yes, that was kind of cool. It was. It was interesting. Yeah. It was funny to see the similarities between everybody who was on the panel, um, vastly different in their jobs, but all had the same like kind of story about how things kind of laid out for them and their yes. different plans. And it was funny that there was like three people had sh- sold shoes before and you yes, know, different yes. things. And it didn't. It didn't look like half the students were ready for that conversation a lot of them were they were middle school students yeah but and i think you know. it would have been a little better if they had chances to ask more questions i think we kind of over talked it i mean i know that was a task that we were supposed to do but yeah. if they'd gotten a chance to really ask some questions i think it would have could have opened up some doors for them a little bit more i concur i concur but uh anyhow this is the stories of gumption podcast so i want to kick it off by asking you what you think gumption means to you i think gumption to me is having the confidence to do something when you know you don't necessarily have control over the outcome and you might not get the results you want Mm. so you go ahead and move forward with something either knowing you don't have the plan completely in place or knowing that um there's some some sort of risk involved um Mm. you know it's not a sure bet that either you're going to persevere through hard work by luck um or you know you're just going to problem solve and figure out a solution and how to get where you want to go hmm so we've talked about a lot of different stories of gumption potentially uh, before we hit the record button today. But um, one thing that really fascinates me is marathons, and you have a story uh, I do have related a story. to. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, take on a, on a marathon experience. Go ahead. Let's let's hear it. So the first time I ran a marathon was in 2012. I ran one in Montreal. Um, it was a little less intimidating because it was close to home. Um, I had just had my daughter turned a year and decided I was going to get back in shape and I was going to do it for uh, my 32nd birthday. So I was super excited about it and spent the summer training. My training plan um, wasn't what most athletes would say. It was more like I'm not going to drink booze a week before and I'm going to just run a lot. <laughs> Um, but it wasn't, uh, I didn't do any research. I just didn't have time to do it to see like the best way to run or how you should do it. I just went out and ran a lot. And were you a runner before that? Or did um, you just wake up one day and say, I want to run a marathon? So I would say I run, but I would not say I'm a runner. Mm. Um, I've never had fast times. I just do it for kind of clearing my head and just, uh, it's kind of like a social hour for my friends and I, I've got a group of girls that we run together. Um, we talk about a lot of things, actually, mostly I talk, they pretend they're <laughs> listening and, um, we just keep going and it passes the time, but it's yes. just, uh, it's nice to get fresh air and they're, uh, they're pretty good diehards about it. So we'll run early in the morning when it's dark and, uh, Ooh, you know, that's, I can't do that. I, I, I don't, I try, but I just, I'm a late, I'm a late evening runner. If I run, I just, yeah. I struggle to wake up early to yeah. run or to exercise. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I'm definitely an early person getting it done, um, and and we just do it. So the first marathon wasn't as bad as I thought. Um, when I finished it, I said I'll never do it again because um, it wasn't that the race itself was terrible. I'll tell you, when I finished running, that feeling was like you have that high for like a minute, and then it was like, oh, my God, your whole body is like crippled, um, <laughs> and I could barely walk. And we were in Montreal, so we went to a couple pubs, had something to eat and drink, and every time we yes. get up from those bar stools, like I could move less and less and less um, until we finally headed back to Plattsburgh, and then the next two days I was in so much pain. I was like, I'm never running again. I mean, my <laughs> feet were black and blue. I had blisters, and it just wasn't fun. Um, so I took some time off, and after my second child, I'd thought about running, and – 
I did a lot of smaller races, so like the Boilermaker in Utica, um, some half marathons, and I still thought I would never run a marathon again. A girlfriend of mine tried to get me to run the New York City Marathon. She was like, put your name in. I was like, nope, not interested. That ship sailed. I'm getting too old now. I'm not interested. And she put her name in. She won in the lottery. And then she um, sprained her ankle. We were doing actually a Spartan race. And she realized that she couldn't do that race that year. So she deferred for a year. thought she'd have a year to train her ankle to get back in shape. And um, it didn't happen. So about six weeks before the New York City Marathon last year, she said, you know, there's no way I can run this race. But I hate to get it like lost. Like it took a lot. It's deferred. I can't defer again. Would you want to run it for me? And I thought about it. I'd asked a couple of friends and they all said, you're crazy. I mean, at that time I hadn't run, I'd run a half marathon in April. Um, so that was, you know, 13 miles. And this is now September 15th-ish or so, about six weeks before the race. And um, I hadn't run more than three miles since Oh my God. And you had six weeks to go. And I had six weeks to go. So I kind of thought about it and contemplated it. Six weeks to go, two kids, a full-time job, and a husband who works shift work. So um, I kind of bat around the idea, but my girlfriends were really on board and like, well, we won't run it with you, but like, we'll run with you to help you train. The weather was still nice. And they're like, we'll go and watch like, because we knew another friend who was running the race and she ultimately was running it solo because her boyfriend had dropped out because he was injured. So I said, eh, what do I have to lose? I paid nothing for it. Like, I'm going to go. I'm going to try it out. So six weeks before um, the race, I started running. Still before marathon day, I had not run uh, more than 12 miles was my longest run. Oh, my um, God. That I had done. And I figured I was just going to, like I said, I didn't know what the results were going to be. I knew I could figure out a way. I knew worst case scenario, if I could run the first 13, even if I walked the second 13 or a combination of run, walk, that I would be able to do it. And I just said the heck with it. I went. It was a once in a lifetime opportunity and I got it done. Wah. Wah. It must have been all mental. It was. Um, and I, I feel like a marathon, sorry to interrupt you, no, but like fine. I feel like a marathon uh, is truly like one of the ultimate mental toughness tests i think it is and i think like it makes a big difference if you have somebody to run with um and the girl i ran with and i will say in new york city compared to other races like there's just so much going on and so much to see so aside from just the crowd support i mean it's pretty cool when you're running like over the brooklyn bridge and when you're running and oh, you can yeah. see like you know the statue of liberty off to the side and you see these skyscrapers and you see um all sorts of really neat things so it was uh, pretty cool um I think some of it that was super intimidating to me was, and I can't think exactly what, there was some sort of terroristic attack, and I'm trying to think which one it was, but it was like the week before the race. Mm. So at every intersection, they had taken garbage trucks and parked them sideways. There were cement barricades, um, so nobody could plow through the crowds. And um, it was really kind of freaky to see that, not so much while you're running the race, but the idea was planted in my head when we drove out to Staten Island in the morning to get there um, and the streets were bare at that point, but you could see every intersection had some sort of barricade or some sort of garbage truck or cement trucks were parked. I mean, it was like they commandeered any truck that they could find um, to put in these intersections just so it would block people from from getting... Oh, it was in um, one of the incidents where somebody was like just plowed through a crowd in london people. was that where it was i can't remember yeah it's, it's been you know two which years is, now but which is freaky because i think relatively around when that was still kind of being talked about my wife and i went to london okay and i remember at one point in time we walked across that spot and then somebody around was like yeah yes, it was, spot. It's exactly and i was like was. i was like oh shit this is real now. Yeah, this there is was real. Living in our North Country bubble here in Plattsburgh, it's like you, you know it's real, but like all of a sudden you're there and you're like, whoa, this is. Yeah, and at five so, in the morning when you're when you're driving and 
you know, New York City, which is generally never a sleepy, quiet town, but at 5 a.m. It's, it's definitely much quieter and there's no traffic. And you just see all these intersections and you, it really set into me like, oh, you know, there's a chance. And you think about things like the Boston Marathon and you think about other things, um, you know, these terroristic attacks. And you're like, God, you know, everybody who ran those races or everybody who was in those movie theaters or in those schools always thinks like it'll never happen to me. So I was kind of got in my headspace and it was pretty distracting because, you know, there's not a lot going on. You're kind of quiet. You're kind of, you know, just kind of planning your routine, your strategy, that I was thinking about those things. And it was a li- started to get a lot more intimidating at that mm. point. Like, why did I sign up for this? Should I have done it? Should I not? And I think that's kind of where the, the gumption set in because, um, as I told you earlier, like the logistics of the New York City Marathon are just unbelievable. Um, it was really a lot to take in. So, I mean, my start time was at 1040. I met in um, Times Square at about 450 in the morning. Holy shit. (laughs) To get on a bus at 530 to go to Staten Island um, to get there. So the Staten Island Ferry, which is free, runs every 20 minutes. You can take that, um, but you don't reserve tickets. It's first come, first serve. The lines are really long and it's really crazy um, to be able to get in there. Also, um, to make arrangements for these start times and traffic, I mean, they tell you you should be there a minimum of two hours in advance. So I had joined something called Fred's Team, um, which is a fundraising team for uh, Sloan Kettering. So it's for cancer research and cancer patients. It's really amazing. And uh, I paid a a, a donation and then fundraised a little bit more. Um, So the nice part was they provided the busing there. And then they um, had like some heated tents, which were nice because mm. the day of the race, it was raining. It was about 38 degrees that morning. Um, so it was pretty chilly if you had to stand outside for four hours. Not that the tents were much warmer, but it did give some relief that there was, you know, bathrooms there and snacks oh and you had a little bit of a space. But it that, was uh, it was overwhelming. Jeez. OK, so you finally you finally get there. You What's the bib pickup? I assume so, that's a nightmare too. Yep. If if getting just to the starting line is that much of a nightmare, what's it like even just getting your bib? So the um, the Javits Center is where you do the pickup, and we went to the city. So the race was on Sunday. We got there late Thursday evening, and Friday did it. It was about a two hour production to um, get from where we were staying to where the the convention center was. You have to show your ID. It was like three times I had to show my ID um, to be able to go through. They print out all sorts of electronic things. And uh, when I say I showed my ID, it was actually my girlfriend's ID because I was running as her. Luckily, they're not too uh, strict about it. But I think that was the first time I'd used a fake ID since I was, uh, you know, an adult and not 38 years old, you know, using somebody else's ID to pick up a <laughs> yeah, race right, bib, right. Um, which was funny <laughs> in and of itself. But you were corralled like cattle through line after line to go to different areas that it was like you got fitted for your shirt um, because you did get a really nice race shirt. I will say that for what you paid, you you did get something nice. Um, But that area was one spot and you had to try on the shirts first because they wouldn't take them back. And then you had to go wait in another line, whether you needed a small, medium or large, there was different lines. And while they tried to do it as efficiently as possible, it just took a lot of time. And then you had to go and you had to sign like another waiver before you went and then you had to pick up... um, your bib and get everything else and then now you've done this all and you've got to kind of backtrack through everything and get out and of course they corral you through where all the the vendors are trying to sell you know socks and sneakers and all sorts of things um which is really nice and i understand it has to be there but it took about two hours to to get through that whole process and then get a a taxi back to the hotel oh 
What was the best or most memorable part of that race track? I'd assume there's a lot of cool spots. There was a ton of cool spots. What I really liked actually was running through Central Park. Um, And I think because that's where you Mm. end. So it's kind of like you're coming up on the finish. It's beautiful. Um, I guess I've spent a lot of time in the city. I used to live outside of the city. So we'd go in and we'd uh, do some sightseeing and, of course, partying and eating out and whatnot. Um, But you never see big parks you always like my idea of of new york city is parks are really small they're kind of built sometimes on rooftops or Mm -hmm. like in underutilized spaces between buildings um but central park is huge i mean it's you know city blocks i mean it's miles what central park is and i just wasn't expecting it to be that big i had no idea it was that big and it was just i think because of the fact it was like kind of this sleepy little quiet thing um but it was the end of the race so the the crowd excitement as you got there you know it's your last like two and a half miles of the race um was just over the top because they just knew you were finishing and you were kind of at that low where you're like oh my god i can't do this like it's only two more miles i've done 24 but the last two when i started putting it in my head i'm like god that's gonna take me like over 20 minutes like that's a long time to be running um when you've already run you know at that point it was four hours and you know, 15 minutes at that point yeah. that I've been running. So it was, um, it's such a long time. Oh it's a long God. time. It's a really long time. Um, but did you, know, you feel your legs? Is that like, it's just numb or is it pain or is it both? It's were, like, what? like, it was almost like your out of body experience. Like you wow. feel like you're going so slow. Like I felt like I was going and I kept checking my watch because I was like, I felt like I was running like 15 minute miles. Like it was slow. And then I looked down and it was like nine fifty or ten ten. I'm like, I'm not really going that slow, but it really, it felt like you were, it kind of felt like you were like in this alter universe for me anyway. I'm sure yeah. people who actually trained um, probably didn't have that experience, but I was like, could not wait to finish. And that's where I really, you know, my, my best two miles were the last two miles. And I think it was really just because you knew you were coming to an end. The crowd support was amazing. And it was just, like I said, this energy about it that was like wow. really like, I don't know, a city of strangers. And I mean, other than my, my girlfriends that went down and, and my friend's boyfriend, you know, there's a handful, half a dozen people that I know cheering me on. I don't know anybody else in the city. You know, it's not like when you run the Plattsburgh Half Marathon, every other block you see somebody you know and people know you right. by name. Um, but there, you know, suddenly everybody's just yelling for you. So it was really, it was nice. You mentioned that people would put like their name on their with, shirt. With Sharpie, so, people yeah. would write their names across either their arms or down the sleeve of their shirt or across like, you know, their breasts, like pretty large, like some yeah. things you could see. And that's kind of what they do. People just start yelling. If they see a name written, they'd start yelling, Ryan, way to go. Or, you know, Danielle, way to go. Keep it up. And, you know, it kind of takes you off guard at first because like, oh, it must be another person. There's not another Danielle. And then you realize, oh, I wrote my name. That's why. So wow. it was one of those uh, tricks that they actually told us when you did packet pickup. Like that's a thing that people do. So that must that that must have been so hard to to prep as good as well as you could have over six weeks. It was. I feel like that's like a lot of people like train for like a year or six months or I four months. I spent m- like, most of that summer before eating a lot of carbs, sitting by my pool, <laughs> drinking a lot of tea. I was carb loading um, for a solid five I, years. And I then. didn't know what I was carb loading for. <laughs> Turns out it was a marathon, but uh, yeah. it seemed to work out. And so um, you ran the the Montreal the Montreal Marathon. Uh, what's the time difference here um, between the two? 2012 and 2018. So, so you six literally years just did this. Mm-hmm. Wow, two years ago. Yep. Wow. Well, just over a year. It was November of 2018. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's wild. So I, th- I think in my mind, like, that kind of is, like, the classic definition of gumption. Like, I had no plan. Um, I knew that, like, the laws of, you know, not physics per se, but, you know, anybody who was training for a race has a plan, a better plan. They know you need so much time. You need so much effort. You need so much this. You need so much that. Um, you know, nutrition. You should be at your optimal weight. You should have this. And it was, like, 
I didn't even get new running shoes and I just ran with what I had. And it was, well, it was because of the point, like once I got to the point where I had about two weeks before the race, I was like, oh, I should have got new shoes. But then I was like, why would I switch it up now? Because mm. I've got two weeks, I'll get blisters. Like if I get blisters, I won't run. Um, so it was, it was a strange dynamic, but I muckled through and figured I'm just going to do it. And, you know, my um, first kind of goal was like, all right, I want to just finish it. I want to finish it and like be proud of the time I finished. And then I said to myself, like, that's bullshit. Like, just to say you're going to finish. Like, that's a loosey-goosey goal. You're like writing yourself off. Like, let's set some more goals. So like I had a couple like kind of micro goals. Like, I'm not going to walk for at least the first nine miles. So like that was like my first chunk. Like, okay, I'm not going to walk at all. If I can make it through nine miles, I knew I could get through that. It wasn't going to, you know, time-wise in my head. I'm like, all right, it's about an hour and a half. I can do anything for an hour and a half. Um, and that's kind of like how I chunked things out. And then, you know, the time that ultimately I was looking to beat was uh, my first one I did in 424. I knew it was not possible I could ever beat that time because I was now older, a second kid later, and had trained for only six weeks. Um, yeah. So, you know, I was shooting for that. I wanted to finish under 445, and I did. I finished uh, right under 440. So for me, it was really fantastic. Like, it was what I wanted, and it wasn't a sandbagging goal. So you Did you eat the gels and stuff along the way or any of that? Or did you just <sighs> no fuel? you just like powered through all mental i had a few david um, goggins style no i definitely had a few like a friend of mine had told me about using um some of the the goo packets actually have caffeine in them the ones i'd had before weren't they were just sugar and like some sort of uh caloric intake so like mm. some sort of calories um i tried every three miles to have those the problem is like when you start to get dehydrated it's so hard to get that goo down if you're not like chugging it with water and my whole thing was it was really hard to drink water at that point. Like I mm. just didn't want to stop and like have to like chug it down. So I was just kind of like, I don't know, moving around my mouth, trying to swallow it. <laughs> like it was like, it was like Laffy Taffy. It was awful. Um, yeah. But it worked. Um, the downside was when you have those every three miles and you're doing 26 miles, you have about nine packets of those. You look at the caffeine intake. They have... Um, 80 milligrams of caffeine, which is about the cup, same as a cup of coffee. So it was like I had had nine cups of coffee. Um, oh my gosh. So I didn't sleep well afterwards. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> and yeah. that's what you needed. Right. Oh my gosh. I referenced David Goggins. Have you, have you, you familiar with David Goggins I'm is? I'm not. Oh, this is good. Okay. So I, <clears throat> he's pretty extreme, okay. but, uh, it reminds me a little bit of, of what you just did because it sounds like it's, it's pretty much all mental what you did. Um, I mean, obviously physical fitness is a big piece too, but like six weeks of training for a full marathon, you must have powered through mentally. I, I can't. I did. Yeah. So this guy, David Goggins, he is a little crazy, but he, I'll try and give you the, the short story here, but he, he just wrote a book called, um, can't hurt me. Okay. So if you want to make a mental note for the future, but okay. he, he, uh, he basically grows up in, uh, I think it's Rochester, New York area. He's overweight. He lives in a, an abusive household, very rough childhood, and uh, ultimately um, wants to be in the Air Force as a paratrooper. He goes in, and because he's out of weight, or uh, over, overweight, out of shape, uh, he fails out, can't get in, and then he becomes a, an exterminator. Oh. Um, <laughs> very, very similar career path. <laughs> I'm realizing this yeah. isn't the same exact thing, but uh, my, my point here is his mental toughness. So right. I'm getting to it. But uh, he ultimately decides down the road he wants to be a Navy, Navy SEAL. 
and I don't know where this came from, but he, he, he has to pass the, um, whatever the test is, um, that you have to, um, take to get into the military. Okay. Uh, and he has to pass all the physical fitness things. He goes through, uh, the worst week. They call it hell week three times because he fails the Navy SEAL test two times in a row. Mm. Uh, and he keeps going back for more pain and more like, you know, the Navy SEAL training. It's like one of the worst things ever. And then he eventually becomes a Navy SEAL. Then he goes on to be, uh, uh, a, a ranger or something, which is even more difficult. And then he goes on to do, um, he breaks these records and gets winning times for, um, 50 milers and hundred milers. Like and like, yeah, yeah. Like who is this guy? Right? right. And then he now also holds the, um, the world record for number of pull-ups in 24 hours. It's oh like 4,000, some crazy number. And so throughout the book, he comes back to this theme all the time of like, like the classic saying, embrace the suck and like how your body always has more in the tank than your mind is telling you. And I just can't, I I, I just think about that a lot now whenever I'm running because you must've had to go through that mental, like your reward will be like, and I was just doing all these calculations in my head. Like, okay, if I can run a mile and then I walk a minute and I was already, you know, 10 miles into it. I'm like, the most I can change my time is 14 minutes. So then I was like, okay, this will work. So then I was like, I'd run that mile and then I'd try to walk that. And then I was realizing that it was so dumb. Like you think it's adding a full minute, but it's not because that time you still would have been running at a slower pace. So it was really only adding like 30 seconds. So right. then it somehow seemed like, I mean, when you only have to think about running 10 minutes and you get to walk a minute, it was like that minute I wasn't even walking a minute. It was like, a few seconds to catch my breath. I'm like, all right, I can do this again. And it was just yeah. just chunking those little goals. Like that's how I had to keep playing mind tricks on myself. Like if you do this, then you get this. And I'm really <laughs> all about like if then goals. Like yeah. if this happens, this is what we're doing. If yeah. I get this, like we'll do this next. So, oh man, now I'm all conflicted because I have put my name in to the lottery. Never run a marathon before in my life. This is like a little underlying theme of a lot of my podcasts. I feel like I freak out about marathons because I secretly want to do one but you should I'm, definitely I'm stru- do it and if you, stru- if you get it it's a once in a lifetime opportunity <laughs> it's, well it's like, like it's like i suck at getting up early in the morning I, obviously i would do it if i had if i got in but it just it's like okay if i pull the what are all the times you you said you started at 10 something but there's times throughout the whole morning right so i think the first so like there's um the uh, the chair races which is pretty amazing so the people who are doing it like in a wheelchair um which those athletes i have tremendous respect oh yeah i've never seen people persevere and when you're on these inclines and these people i can't even imagine giving it everything they got oh my god see like their arms trembling and they're like you know seven miles in and you just know like this is really hard for them um and it's awesome but they start earlier um to try to get the uh the people who are really good. I mean, obviously, you have a, a gamut of people. So you have the, the great athletes, the, the elite athletes that are in the wheelchairs. And then you have the people who are, I'm just going to, you know, more like me. I'm just going to figure out yep. and do it. So they want to start them first so they can get everybody off. Those people have a chance because it's so hard to, like, navigate in a wheelchair mm. or a hand yeah. around people. Um, so I think they start around 7.30 in the morning, maybe, 7, 7.30. Okay. Um, and I think the last race time started at, like, 1.15, 1.30, like, Holy it's, there's shit. There's a lot of waves. It's wow. every 20 minutes. And it's pretty um, pretty legit. Like, you cannot sneak into a wave. Like, 
you cannot try to move up to an earlier time. Like it's it's very hard. There's a lot of security, and I mean I understand why they do it, but they're checking bibs and they're turning people away, and you know they want to make sure that you know they've got enough people on the course and not too many people. So it's um, I can't imagine being on the logistics team for the New York City Marathon. My God, that's yeah. that's crazy. But there's thousands and thousands of people watching. Yeah, I mean if you figure there's fifty thousand people that run it, if each of those people only had two visitors that came with them, two supporters. And then you figure all the people who live in New York City. I mean, it's a big party weekend for them. Like, they know they're locked in their streets, that they're not going anywhere, that the restaurants are going to suck because they're packed with all these tourists. So, like, you go by and you see, like, all these people on balconies and rooftops just drinking mimosas and shouting and cheering and, like, having a great time because they're kind of held hostage in their own city until, you know, the race is over. That's wild. Well, we'll see. I guess we'll we'll have to give an update if I if I get in or I hope that you, know. you do. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> well we'll give it a I'm shot. I'm sure your training plan will be better than mine. Yeah. I, I, I I've been running uh fairly regularly but not on a, a training plan for that in particular. I've also contemplated the Burlington. Mm-hmm. Have you ever done I've the Burlington? I've done the half. You've done the half. Yep, not okay. the full. I hear the uh there's some hills. The <laughs> some hills. They call it the assault on yeah, Battery Street. Battery Street. That's the worst. Oh, you're working for Hickok and Boardman, where it's right down there. Okay. Uh, you know, right in, in Burlington, uh, I spent a lot of time last several years in in Burlington, and um, Battery Street is that's that's the mother of all hills over there. Yeah. And apparently, you got to go up the whole thing the whole at thing. like mile 15. I know, right at the end. So, <laughs> I was running the second half. I split the race with somebody, and um, that it was tough to finish it the second half. So, you like, had to do the battery street? The battery street. But luckily, at that point, I was only like maybe six miles in. Okay. I can't imagine if I had been, you know, 17 miles in at the time. It would have oh. been way worse. I'm really selling it to myself. <laughs> You'll do it. Like I said, I didn't it's, take it too It's all mental, though. I go back to David Goggins. He's a little extreme because he, 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 but he, because of some of the examples he says, but like, I think the mindset makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You can, you can do whatever you set your mind to, even though your whole body feels like it's going to fall apart. Yeah. It's not. Just keep yeah. thinking about you only have to do it for so much longer. Exactly. Exactly. Well, that's impressive. Thanks. Um, I'll have to check in with you as my progress keeps going, I you suppose. You should probably get a real athlete to check in with. I'm not, <laughs> sure that I, I'm not sure that I'll give you any good advice because... Yeah, but I feel, I feel like I feel like uh, I relate to you more. Yeah. Like, I'm the one that wants to, like, carb load for five years yeah. and then... Like, like I said, uh, three days before the race, so that Thursday night, we took the train in the city. We arrived at, like... One o'clock in the morning, it was the last city train, um, went out and had a few drinks and uh, checked into the room at about 3.30 in the morning. And that's when uh, they double booked the room. So I sat on a lady's foot who she sat up and punched me in the face. Because if you can imagine, you know, five girls, four of which were pretty intoxicated coming into her room at that hour of the morning, probably scared her to death. Um, and we quickly exited the room, went down to the front desk, and immediately the lady's phone was ringing, and she could tell it was a very angry lady who was, you know, screaming about it. So, again, I don't think my training advice, I don't think anybody would tell you two days before the race, go out until 3.30 in the morning and have drinks and, you know, <laughs> pizza from the street corners. All, everything about it was wrong, but it worked out. It seems like this is a perfect transition towards, like, the other layer of conversation I wanted to have with you, but we're both in sales roles. Yep. And I feel like uh, the one thing I love to talk about with fellow salespeople with is sort of this concept that like life is one big negotiation mm-hmm. and like sales is in so much more 
uh, of everybody's life than they want to admit. But I feel like there's this stigma of, no, 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 no. I, I'm de- it's defensive. I'm not a salesperson. Yeah. But actually being a salesperson is an incredi- incredibly impressive thing if you're successful. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun to be in sales. Some days. Some days. Some days it's not, but most, most days it is. So your sales is probably different from mine, but um, mine is, is very uh, a long sales cycle. Uh, there's only one opportunity per year per potential client when they renew to, to meet them. But like, how does yours work? How does your world work? So before I came to Placo doing industrial sales, I was selling for Pepsi. I was a district manager for Pepsi. So we're talking oh, no things kidding. that are $10 a case and something that everybody knows. And um, in this area, there's a super loyal following to Pepsi. It was a heavy market share, so 70 market mm-hmm. share. Um, so 70% of the business automatically went to Pepsi. People want their Mountain Dew around here. Um, so <laughs> things were pretty easy to sell. Um, it was, you know, it wasn't a life or death situation asking you to, to buy Pepsi or get a display yeah. in your store. People were, it was low risk for them. I mean, it sold itself. Um, and not that I'm diminishing the value of any Pepsi salesman or, you know, any product like that, but it was much different. So then yeah. I joined the Placo team and I went to selling valves that, you know, our average valve is about $10,000. Sales cycle is usually 90 to maybe 180 days. Um, some projects, you know, the the least expensive valve we sell is about $3,500, the most expensive. I mean, we sold some that are, you know, one valve is over $100,000. Um, so that was hard enough of a challenge going to that mindset. And then the second piece that was really challenging was, you know, whether you're dealing with a client now, I mean, ultimately, some of your business, is any of it commercial or is it all? Uh, my focus is almost 100% commercial. Okay. So you get yeah. it. That you're, you, you have the same challenge, I assume, that you can convince somebody all you want, but it's ultimately not their money to spend. Um, right. There's still s- another layer of, layer of approval process. So you've got the relationship with John. You love John. John loves you. He knows you're going to give great customer service. But John's now got to go sell to Jane. And Jane's not convinced because she doesn't know you. She's busy. She doesn't deal with that. So there's this whole other layer of trying to convince the, the you convince the end user you know in the account like yeah i'm gonna be your person i'm gonna be your guy or gal we have a good rapport things are going well i've got the solution for you and you get their buy-in and then when you're dealing with um these corporations then it's like they have to now convince either their their boss or the plant manager Mm -hmm. or whatnot and then a lot of times you know in your world, somebody has to have insurance. Um, yeah. People don't have to. Not have everybody it. needs to have a valve. They don't. And a lot of times <laughs> they fully recognize that yeah. they need it, um, but it's just not in the budget. So mm. they choose to do nothing. And that's probably the most frustrating part of my job is when you've convinced everybody, they recognize that you're the solution, um, everything is going well, but then they say we can't get the funding. So they're dealing with a, a broken competitor piece of equipment or they kind of um, – you know, rig it to work and just kind of, you know, jimmy things around and it works good enough um, that it'll get them through. And, you know, my argument always is like, but what happens when it really fails and it stops working? Like, you're going to have to do something then. And a lot of times when these plants have a failure like that, what it means is um, it's not like if you came in today and your computer was just completely dead, like there's nothing that you can do. There's other things you do, whether it's filing or you could call customers or you could ask somebody else to do something. Um, 
in a lot of plants, it's, you know, I sat in a plant waiting room one day when I was supposed to do a training for almost six hours because they were telling me it was costing them $18,000 an hour to be down and they had down equipment. So he's saying, I cannot pull my people off from their jobs to come and sit here and do a training with, with you and Bob today. Like you're going to have to wait. And we were in a remote area of California. So wow. it was, you know, you start doing that math and you're like, wow, $18,000 an hour and it's six hours, you know, it just costs this plant this much money. Um, we had another very large client um, in New York. Um, it's, uh, you know, I've got some NDAs, so we can't talk about it too much. Sure. But, uh, very, very prestigious uh, company who traded for us. Um, we spec'd out a product and they said, okay, you know, we gave them a very competitive price. It was for a pilot plant. And they said, you're just too expensive. You're too expensive. We can't buy it. Um, we're going to get something from overseas. So the, the product that they got was about 25% less than what we had offered them. Um, but they still split the business. So they gave us some of the business, but then they split the other business and gave it to this offshore import. And um, that piece of equipment didn't even perform for six hours in the plant. And wow. when it didn't perform for six hours, it shut down their entire process. Yes. Um, they couldn't get anybody to call them back. They couldn't get replacement parts from overseas. They called and they called and they called. And I mean, this is a very huge corporation. This is not like just a mom and pop place calling to complain. I mean, they've got a lot of weight to throw around and they really got nowhere. So then they came back to us and said, okay, we really need your help. Um, so they started coming, working with our engineering team. And at that point we had to say, okay, now not only are we more expensive, than what we were before, but now there's an expedite fee. Like you're asking us to do things like more work, more design time. We've got to rush it. We'll get it to you, but it's going to cost us much more. And the value proposition was such that, like, okay, but our entire process is shut down, so we have no, you know, no no other options right now. So literally, they traded, you know, about a hundred and fifty thousand dollars extra in cost because it shut down their process. Yeah. Um, when upfront it was about a fifteen thousand dollars spend difference. Yeah. That's see, that's wild. Like I feel like there's so many parallels in longer sales cycle type B2B situations, yeah. but I can think of so many times where uh the the value proposition is is just not getting through in the way that I had hoped. Um sometimes it goes through perfectly, but there's always that, as you know, the the weight of like value versus cost versus the risk, uh, risk. Too. Like, and like oh. the word risk is. I almost called this. Po- I almost thought about making this uh, podcast uh, stories of risk because I feel like there's so many themes within right. this concept of just risk, and people have such different risk tolerances. Yes. Oh my gosh, and it comes out clear in their buying decisions. But yes. But um, that's really interesting to me. So do you do you find you have a lot of competition or? So we don't necessarily have, um, I guess the best way to explain it is, you know, you've got a cup of coffee right now and I have a, a bottle of water. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're thirsty, you know that either one of those, you might not like them, but they're both going to meet your needs. Um, in my case, we're selling dissimilar products. So it'd be like if I compared this phone to this bottle of water, they do the same thing, but you don't know that my phone is going to quench your thirst because it's a product that's so unfamiliar to you. Mm. So every time you're looking for something to quench your thirst, you're going to look for something on liquid state, something that looks like what you're used to, where my product is a whole different technology. So it's um, trying to get them to recognize, okay, these are the same. this will accomplish the same thing, but it's a better solution and here's why. Mm. And that's where it's a little bit challenging when it's, you know, soft drinks or if it's something, you know, if it's insurance, um, well, your portfolio might be different or your value adds might be different or, you know, your customer service might be different. People get that insurance is insurance. Um, so 
they're going to call an insurance company. Well, right. our biggest thing that we compete against is something called a rotary airlock. And that would spin, if you can imagine, like a water wheel, like it spins, um, where our valves are more like a um, spaceship concept, as I tell people, that like you go in an airtight chamber. And to go into the next chamber, the first door has to be closed. You're in this airtight chamber. You'd open a door, you'd go out, and you'd have to shut that door. So you always have that airtight seal. That's what our product does, but it looks nothing like what they're used to. Mm. So it's hard to get them. You know, it's kind of a two-step process when you're trying to convert that. That first, they have to recognize that this will accomplish, you know, the goal and give them an optimal solution. And then second, now you have to start the whole, okay, now you have to buy from me as opposed to switching suppliers and just – it's hard when you go to something that's unknown. You know, if I tried to mm. convince you tomorrow to buy a, a power scooter because it'll still get you to work, you're like, eh, but I'm used to a car. Yeah. Or, you know, even just looking at like a car truck situation that, you know, people generally in their buying habits are the same. There's a reason why, you know, you're comfortable with a truck, even though a car might give you a better solution. Or, I mean, in my case, you know, for a long time, people tried to convince me to drive a minivan. I wasn't doing it. Like, it probably <laughs> was a better solution. It was more economical. It had more room. It had, you know, many more... Um, you know, things that would be advantageous to my family, but it just wasn't resonating with me that I was like, nope, not doing it. I'm not switching. You know, I can't do it. And that's kind of how I liken it to my customers sometimes is that it's hard. People don't like change and people are used to doing things that they've always done. And now it's kind of like, it'll be a better solution, but that upfront cost, whether it's indirect of its labor, it's time, it's training, it's figuring out what to do, it's switching suppliers. And mm -hmm. sometimes it's even as small as just the paperwork to, to get something switched that people are just put off by it. Like, I don't want to fill out credit terms. I don't want to yep. try to find a new supplier. I, you know, my purchasing manager is just going to give me a hard time about this. I don't like to deal with her. Like I'm not going to her, you know, and that's where it's hard. How do you in your business typically open up uh, doors like it's a brand new prospect or is it is it is Placo pretty well known or is there a lot of situations where you're reaching out to a prospect that's never heard of Placo and like how does that work in your industry? So in our industry we're very well known in a couple key industries so energy from waste which is um, very intriguing to me it's our trash incineration plants so hmm. um, up until I started with Placo I never thought about when I put my Casella bin out or um, you know a garbage bin like where's this actually going um, now I've been to over 100 of these plants across Canada and the United States. I've toured them, I've looked at them. And when you see a two-ton claw picking up trash and it's running 24-7, you think about, wow, that's 4,000 pounds of trash is getting picked up every time that claw moves. It's and it wild. goes all day long. Um, <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, I can tell you the smell of a garbage incineration plant is, um, you know, that water that goes in the bottom of your trash bin yeah. <laughs> in the summertime? That's what these plants smell like all the time. So it's yeah. not a nice smell, um, but it's very intriguing. So anyway, um, with within that industry, cement, iron ore, mining, and okay. steel, we're very, very well known. We're stable. We're the Kleenex of, of valves. They know Platco. We're very well respected. Um I think, honestly, a lot of our customers would be shocked to learn we're as small as we are, that we're 62 people um, in Plattsburgh, New York. And if they came to see our facilities, they'd be like, oh, like we thought it must have been you know, yeah. much bigger and much more robust because we're a really critical part of the process. Um, but that said, there's still all these other industries that we can um, branch into. And I was just in Nashville uh, two weeks ago for biomass, which is very similar to the garbage incineration plant. We do a lot like in power, but it's a different kind of power. So it's mm. all of your biomass, your your clippings, your wood, you know, that type of thing. So we're an unknown to those people. So it's a lot of kind of starting to change your perception that, you know, we know we're not coming back with a purchase order, but what's 
what are we going to measure success? We're going to come back with 50 new leads and they're going to be qualified leads. And here's our plan to attack them because we know that even if you're interested in the product, you might not have a need right now just because you like right. our product. If your valve isn't broken down, if it's not time to do an upgrade, you're not going to be interested. And that's okay. It's planting that seed, softening the beachhead now, getting in front of them, um, getting enough touch points. So when they're ready to, when something happens and their valve breaks, now instead of just going and ordering the same thing, they're going to say, oh, I met, I met that girl at that show. Um, let me dig out her card. Or I just got an email from Placo a month ago. I'm going to find it. And they'll just start remembering. And that's, you know, our challenge is we're about 10 people who work for Placo in sales, um, covering the entire world. So mm -hmm. it's, um, there's a, it's a big world. There's a lot of, yeah. so what we have to, you know, we kind of joke about all the time is, you know, we've got to get a focus that there's all these things we want to do and all these opportunities we know that are there. But if we try to do too little, we just don't do it well. We just kind of dip our toes in the water and it's kind of diluted. So we have to really put on, we put on full court presses. If we go mm. after certain industries or certain businesses, or we design new products, we just launched a product that's specific to the cement industry. Um, so that's really one of our key targets and initiatives. And that's what's, um, it's fun because we can really influence change a lot. Like it doesn't, yeah. you know, being so small um, and getting these larger orders, um, you really feel good about it because it's what keeps the guys busy in the shop and it, it yeah. keeps everything moving. And it, it's not like when I worked for Pepsi, you know, we signed SUNY Plattsburgh and it was great and it was 100,000 cases and I should have been ecstatic. And I mean, it was going to be reflected in my pay. Like that's a big commission on these things. But at the end of the day, Indra Nui, the CEO of Pepsi, she didn't care. She didn't notice. 100,000 cases to all these shareholders is nothing. Mm -hmm. um, but in a $100,000 order to 62 employees, and, you know, if everybody on the sales team gets one, well, there's a million dollars. That's a lot of money. So it's, um, it's fun. It's fun to do that. Yeah, that's cool. How did you find yourself uh, falling into a sales career like that? Because uh, I feel like my anecdotal experience with most salespeople is they didn't graduate high school and go, yep, I'm going into sales. <laughs> I graduated from college, um, got a great job working for the Red Cross. Um, it was a nice. not-for-profit, but it was not-for-profit, which in my mind at the time was not for pay. Um, so <laughs> it was... Been there. Trust me. I know what you're talking about. A great starting point. Service-oriented. Learn yeah, a lot of experience. I did learn a lot. Met a lot of nice people. I actually installed the Lifeline buttons um, that people wore. Um, and it was a great just all around learning experience for me. Um, but it wasn't enough. So I supplemented waitressing on the side, bartending on the side. And then, you know, you get to the point that you're a college grad and you're working three jobs and you're just always doing things and it didn't work. So I had applied for a position at SUNY Plattsburgh as an admissions advisor. Um, so I had started working there. Um, I really liked that. And I liked the idea of selling kind of this intangible that I was selling them on the area, that I was selling them on the college, that I was selling them on things. And I enjoyed that. Um, I did that for about a year, and then I decided I wanted to go back to school, so I went and got my MBA at SUNY New Paltz and started working there, doing same kind of thing, but for the business program. Um, it was uh, an assistant to the director of business, so it would be meeting with a lot of students, reviewing resumes, trying to help them decide whether they should be going back to school, if it's a full-time thing, a part-time thing, like what's going to work for you, that type of stuff, and um, it was really where I started realizing like, oh, people are listening to me. To be honest, it was like I had, I, and I should say actually my first job in sales was all through high school and college. I'd worked at Sears. Um, yes. In a sales role there. Classic retail experience. like yeah. sales. Like it was a commission sales job, but I'll, I'll be completely honest. I'm going to diminish the value of my sales at that point. It was, <laughs> I was a young blonde girl selling tractors and I worked with some really grumpy old men. So when somebody came in just by saying hi and being nice and knowing 
a little bit about the product. Um, it pretty much sold itself. So I, I really can't say <laughs> that it was much of a, a sales yeah. job at that point. Um, it was more just a, a means to to pay my bills. And um, they actually had a great tuition reimbursement program at the time. So it helped offset some of my college. Um, but when I went back to school, then I started my MBA classes. It was in uh, marketing is where I went my concentration. Nice. And again, I was still waitressing. It's always been a theme of like waitressing and bartending because it's lucrative and it's easy. And it was always something that was available at nighttime. So if you're taking classes during the day and I just realized that like I could upsell people all the time. Like I'd convince people at the restaurant I worked at to order high end things, um, knowing that it was going to make the bill more expensive, which therefore would make my tip more expensive. And when you start to realize you've kind of got a knack of just talking to people and relating to them and that you can use your um, it always sounds like a negative when you say like your influence to your influence get them. to negotiate or Just, add value. Yeah, and because you, know, you can't discredit either that there was probably additional value or better experience from there you was. upselling. I mean, it. There, they there just needed is. the they needed the convincing. The convincing. Um, once you convince them to do it, it kind of. I don't want to say it becomes addicting, but it does sort of like it's, yeah. it's fun because you realize like oh I got them to do it and. it's I think like we talk about negotiation and my mind ne- uh, has such a negative connotation that people think like a negotiation is so bad. Well, ultimately, it's kind of like you just said, negotiation is always like, how can we make it mutually beneficial? And mm-hmm. I think when you go into it with that mindset of, you know, I'm not the person, even in sales, I don't ever want to screw anybody over. I don't want somebody in that, you know, I had a conversation Never. even with a customer recently that I was just like, I- I'm not interested. If you're not going to feel good about this transaction, I'd rather not do it. Like, exactly. It-, it doesn't work for me. So how can we make it be a win-win? You have to save money. I have to make money. My company has to make money and you guys need a product. So how can we triangulate this all to figure out something that's going to work that you're not going to feel like you were taken advantage of? Like, I can't change certain things. I can't change the price. Like, we have certain margins that we have to meet. We have certain costs that just happen because we're a U.S.-based manufacturer. But I'm not going to discount your feelings because you do own them that, like, they're your feelings. If you feel you're getting screwed here, like, what more could we do? And that's where some of these, like, the add-ons come in, like the, the value add of, okay, mm-hmm. what if I threw in, we can send a tech for on-site commissioning? Or what if a year after it's installed, we'll send somebody out there at no charge to you to help you do your first repair job? And, you know, that kind of makes people feel a little bit better. And I think when everybody feels like they, they've gotten a win, um, it just works out better for everybody. Yeah. But you have to get them sometimes to recognize what that win is. Like, they, <clears throat> they don't realize it, that there's still a win, so... When it was working in a Mexican restaurant, maybe it was, you're not going to have a hangover tomorrow because you're drinking, like, the worst bar stock tequila. (laughs) Have something a little smoother. Or, you know, to be honest, like, there's so much sugar in this. Why don't you try this tequila teeny? Like, I promise you'll feel better about it. And, you know, yes, that kind of thing. Or you're not going to spend, you know, you're going to spend $15 to get this giant margarita, but... If you were going to have three of these anyway, like you're still getting five more ounces and you're paying $3 less, you know, yes. whatever the, the situation is, but making them recognize like, okay, yeah, I don't feel bad about it. There's something in it. Yep. Yep. I feel like sales is this like constant uh, balance between recognizing when the fit is right and when it's not. Right. I, I've had, um, I've had multiple uh, situations where the first time we had a great conversation, it was very clear to me that this person was not in the right position to look at their insurance options and that's fine. And I think the best sale or the better or best salespeople are the ones that can recognize that, see the long game of it and walk away or right. maybe come back or never come back, but recognize that it's not personal. Right. It's just 
Did that person want the big margarita right. or not? They didn't. It's not personal. And right? I think that's like, the hardest part of sales. People when, take it so personal. Oh. Like, oh, God, I suck at my job. No, you don't. That person walked in, knew what they wanted, and they were not prepared to buy that. Just right. because you couldn't get them to buy that does not mean you're bad at sales. It just means you got to play the numbers better. Yeah. Right? We do a lot of role playing at work, which yeah. um, people hate. Nobody likes to role play. Um, you know, where in my mind, it's a game. Like I would actually rather ham it up and like nail a role play because it's easier for me to do it in an artificial situation because you have some level of control that you don't have when you pick up the phone and somebody's calling you or when you're in front of a, a customer and somebody else comes in the room or something happens. Um, but I have a really hard time convincing sometimes the, the people on the sales team that just because somebody says something um, or they're not buying we can't take it personal and that there's a difference between a statement of fact. If I say to you, Ryan, I'm just not interested in the insurance. It doesn't mean you suck as a person. It doesn't mean yeah. that I don't need insurance. It doesn't mean, you know, it's finding out what is that next step? Why are you not interested? Oh, your father sells insurance. Okay. Totally get it. I'm never going to convince you. So like, let's talk about sports instead Yeah. Um, where people take it so personally and they can't remove the two. Or when somebody says something like, you know, your price is too high. Our people sometimes, you know, used to feel so defeated, like, oh, our price is too high. It's a pricing issue. And not realizing that, no, it's just a statement of fact. Your price is high. You're right. It is high. But here's what you get when you get this price. You're yes. not calling a call center in India. You're getting somebody who speaks the language. We can send technicians to your site, usually within a day or two, you know, blah, 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 blah. And trying to convince them. And, and so many times people think like when somebody says like the statement of fact that it's always a negative instead of just yes. what are the next questions or what are the next steps? How can we yes. kind of overcome this? You know, it's not yes. necessarily an objection. It's just we've now said something. Let's address this before we move on to the next thing. Yes. Do you have any examples of uh, from a sales perspective of uh, moments in your life where negotiation just came in handy? Because you're clearly someone who has, has has continued to improve and master the craft of negotiation. And I feel like that must have benefited you. In it's benefited your... me a lot of times. <laughs> um, I've got a four and eight-year-old, so I'm constantly negotiating with them. Yes. Uh, luckily, they're not old enough to realize what's happening now. And a lot of times, I'll just set the stage, like especially with them. Um, I'll give them the three options that I want, but I let them believe that they're making the decision. Where if I'd open it up and said, you know, what do you want to do tonight? We might end up snow tubing in Titus Mountain, which I have zero desire to do. But if I'll say, okay, I'm going to let you girls decide today. Here are the three things you can do. Then they'll pick one. They feel so good about it because they think they made the decision. And I'm like, yeah, well, those are the three things I wanted to do tonight. Like, I, of course, like, I don't really care. Um, but other things that are funny is like my friends will just say like I am that person that's constantly wheeling and dealing, like trying to get something. Um, we had been at a bachelorette party in Nashville for my girlfriend Brandy's wedding. And we were waiting for a taxi. Taxis were really hard to get. And this is before the Uber age. This is like six or seven years ago. So we're a bunch of middle-aged moms having a great time. Like we're just waiting to go downtown. And um, I see a limo driver parked in the parking lot of our hotel. So the girls are all trying to get cabs. They're trying to figure out what to do. And I just walk over and I negotiate with this guy. And I'm like, what are you waiting for? And he said, well, they're at, they were at um, some, it was a, hockey game for these like over 50 men like a hockey league so he's like i'm waiting for them they get done they they have this limo for the whole weekend so i'm like well, what time are they done he says in an hour the game will be done at seven it's only six o'clock at night so i'm like you're just gonna sit here for an hour he's like why not i'm getting paid i'm like well would you like to get paid 50 dollars more and he's like 
what do you mean? And I'm like, well, we want a ride. It's three miles down the road, and we'll pay you $50. You bring us down. I, my friends and I just want to get a picture in the limo. We won't eat, drink any of their booze. We won't make a mess. We won't do anything. It's just three miles. You'll get 50 bucks. You'll be back here before they're done. And the guy really thinks about it for a minute. And he's like, okay, <laughs> get in. So then we convince him to stop at the liquor store and get, you know, we, we go in, we pay for and a yeah. bottle of champagne. We're like, well, you don't have to be back till seven. Could we just drive around and have a drink in the limo? So he's like, not sure about it. So I'm like, girls, if we all throw in five more dollars, like this is a pretty like fun thing we're doing now. Like we just commandeered a limo and here we are like, you know, driving around Nashville in a limo and we're not limo people. So the guy says, I don't know, I should really get back. So we're like, well, we'll each give you, you know, five more dollars. So it'll be, you know, another 25 bucks. So he's like thinking, and I'm like, really? Like, are these guys paying you $75 an hour for this limo? Or is your company getting that and you're getting like 20 bucks of it? And he's like, well... I'm, I'm not going to tell you what I'm making. I'm like, well, I'd have to assume you're not making $75 an hour. I'm like, so there's 25 more bucks if you just drive us around. You'll still be back by 7. You can drop us off, you know, any place downtown on Broadway. So he agrees to it, and my friends are like, how did that just happen? Like, what, what are you doing? And then, <laughs> you know, That's so funny things like that. I, I've done a lot of those things, which kind of make everybody laugh. But Oh, man, the power of negotiation. Yeah. It's in everything. A job interview. Uh, a sales situation, whether you're in a personal situation that like that, where you need yeah. to get something, it's it's I, it's a life skill. It is, and it's funny. One yeah. of my mentors told me the best advice he ever could give me was that everything in life is a negotiation. And he said, you know, salespeople intrinsically do it all day long, and when they get home, they don't want to do it. And it's funny because I realized I was that person. Like I'm constantly negotiating when I get home. I don't want to negotiate. If I go to buy a car, I just want to say to the person, here's the bottom line. Like, you got to win. Yeah. I got to win. Let's do this. Like, I don't want to haggle back and forth. Yeah. I'm the person not a, if I go to a yard sale, I'm not going to haggle with the person. Like, I just want to do it. And he said, you know, to really improve your skill set and get comfortable, like, really good people always ask for something, a negotiate, like everything. So when you walk into the hotel, always asking, you know, for the upgrade when you're on the airplane. And so many people are timid to do it, even though customers do it to us all day long they're asking for things but we mm. as salespeople don't ask for enough value adds and he kind of modeled that behavior a lot we'd go out to dinner and um you know he had worked actually for platco for quite some time and we're at anthony's one night and he says to the waitress listen we're gonna order we had we had some uh, reps that flew in from brazil so it was a big deal and we're you know taking him out to a nice dinner and he's like we're gonna order at least three bottles of this wine it's 70 dollars a bottle he's like so right there your bar bill is gonna be you know over 200 dollars. can we get a free appetizer and she's kind of like shocked by it and she doesn't know what to say. So he's like, gets the manager over and the manager, he's like, listen, I'm not trying to be a jerk. Like we tip well, we're going to be a nice table. We've got, you know, eight guests here, but I know we're going to have at least three, three bottles of this wine. Can we get a free appetizer? And he's like, no brainer. You're like, okay, the most expensive appetizer is $15. So yeah, we'll give you a free appetizer. Yeah. And we still ordered four other ones, but he's like, that's how it's done. And I started <laughs> to realize it. And he's like, you know. When people start to realize that there is something in it for him, so this manager is like, yeah, I, I now know I have a promise that this isn't a table, it's just ordering water, that, you know, they're going to have a, a pretty hefty bill, they're going to do things, I'm going to do something nice, and in turn, they're going to be happy about their experience, it just makes things better. So now I try to test myself out with that a lot. So mm. like, even if I don't negotiate on the car price itself, it's like, okay, but I want three free oil changes. And, you know, people generally will give that to you if you can make it easy. And when you can suggest what you want, instead of saying, you know, what can you do for me? Because then people have no idea, like, yeah, they're reaching for things like, what am I yeah. going to do? And their default is to be defensive. Like, oh, sorry, I can't. This yeah, is like, I don't have the choice or this it's is it's hard thinking. But when you say just <laughs> even the little things checking into the hotel, do you have free bottles of water? Could I get two more? Like, and 
they're like, oh, yeah, you made it easy. You've given them the path of least resistance. Yep. You've given them a solution. It seems pretty low risk. Yeah, we'll do it. Like, you're a Hilton's Honor member. Of course we can do it, you know. Um, so that's been really fun the last, I would say, five or six years. I've been really practicing that, which mortifies my husband most of the time because he's not a negotiator. <laughs> my, my wife would be mortified. Yeah. And he gets embarrassed by it Different personalities. Where, yeah. yeah. It's funny because, like, I, I used to bond with Steve Frederick all the time. Okay. Before, uh, you know Steve yep. Frederick? Um, um, yeah, he just he used to spend, he used to work at Clinton Community yep. for such a long time. Now he's recently over at um, uh, Paul Smith's. But um, when I was in the director of the Boy Scouts, we were both like talk fundraising. That yep. was our version of sales, right? And uh, you always you always used to comment on just the different personalities of in, in the world. And there's nothing wrong with it at all. But we'd go to conferences and we'd both share the same experience where you'd walk into a room at a conference for I'd do it for the Boy Scouts you'd do it for higher ed and uh you know all the all the sales role people were over standing up in a corner like shooting the shit talking to yeah. laughing out loud being really loud and then all the people who were not that that was not their comfort zone were just kind of quietly sitting at a table everybody was happy yes you know yep. <laughs> it's just a different Absolutely. it's a different <laughs> dynamic right yeah so anyhow uh, I feel like you and I could talk for hours about about all of these things, but I'm going to, for in the interest of time, uh, transition to the rapid fire section. Okay. You ready for this? I'm ready for this. This is like, this is it. This, this is, is it. The, this is the big. I'm ready. This is the big show now. Okay. Right. The stories of gumption rapid fire. <laughs> okay. Question number one. What's a book you would gift to a friend and why? So a book I would gift to a friend is called The Day the World Came to Town. Oh, and wow. It's a very interesting book. It's about Gander, Newfoundland. And for people who are about our age um, or older, I think it's amazing. So it's about when 9-11 the attacks were happening, there was all these flights that were in the air, um, these transatlantic flights. That is the further, furthest most uh, point to Europe um, from the, the North America continent. So they started rerouting people. It was an old military base, so they had all this space. And this town of 7,000 people welcomed 10,000 people in one day at 9-11. So these are... Poor, uneducated, rural farmers. Um, by default, people in Newfoundland are—they're known to be a little peculiar, but super friendly. And they welcome these people, and they open up their homes. And many of these flights were actually returning to New York City. And um, so, this is their hometown under attack. They're stuck in Canada, middle of nowhere, Canada. It's like the equivalent of if you drove to Florida from New York, it's that yeah. far north. Um, wow. They get rerouted there, and these people are stuck there for three, four, five days, like sleeping in churches and synagogues and um, and people's houses, and and they shut down the school. And this is you know a time before Wi-Fi, a time before you know there was no oh, long yeah. distance. So people are just letting them use their phones and doing it and getting these astronomical bills. Um, you know, the school that was there got had like phone bills of like thirteen thousand dollars, and as people are trying to pay for it, they're like, no, this is like on behalf of our country. Thank you. Um, and doing these things. And it just showed the reciprocity as years went on. They've set up scholarship funds for these people. They've redone things in the schools. Like all these people were just so touched by this kindness. Wow. And it was just an interesting story. And actually, I traveled to Newfoundland this summer because I was so in love. That's and there's awesome. now a, um, a Broadway play um, that's about this whole story about the day the Holy world smokes. came to town. Holy smokes. What's the name of this book again? Uh, the Day the World Came to Town. And it's a pretty short read. It's nothing high tech. But in my mind, it kind of shifted that perspective of like, you just think of this terrible, terrible thing that happened on 9-11. 
that, you know, I remember exactly where I was. I remember being glued to the TV and you just saw so much of the negative. And then mm. you hear the story that like in Canada, there was just all this really cool things that were going on. And as they start to really profile some of these people that, you know, one guy was a New York State trooper who had been um, in Ireland for something that's coming back. And then there was like a family that had just adopted two babies from, I think, like Russia that are on this plane. And now they have these babies that they just got and they don't even get to go home. And these families like band together to like try to get back to the United States. And, you know, there was people who had children uh, that were still living in New York City. So wow. it was just this really amazing book. And it was pretty inspiring. And it was just nothing that was like... You know, every now and then you read these books that are so inspiring, but you almost think it's like, that would never happen to me. It's like, right. you know, it's great, like, your guy that, you know, was uh, the exterminator and then became a Navy SEAL, yeah. but I know that's not going to happen to me. No, where, <laughs> me either. But you know, <laughs> but it's inspiring. Um, but then you see something like this, and it's so inspiring, and it's, like, so real. Yeah. I like it. The day the world came to town. Yep. I dig it. Question number two. What's a piece of advice that you would go back and give to your 18-year-old self if you could? I probably have three pieces of advice. The first one would be drink more water. Um, back <laughs> when I was 18, I think like a glass of water a day was enough. And I don't think I ever drank more than that. Like I heard, I th- would carry around a Nalgene bottle for days without refilling it. So that'd be the first thing. Um, the second thing is I would probably remind myself to uh, save more money. Like, mm. It was a lot of fun when I was younger, um, but it was just that transactional fun that like if I'd gotten in the routine early on of saving a portion of my paycheck that I never saw, I don't think I ever would have missed it. Um, so whether you invest it in property or you invest it in like a IRA or a 401k or yes. something, a savings account, um, I think that if you can start that mentality of just always putting it aside, you never miss it. Mm. And then the other thing is I would say like find yourself some really good friends because I think it's made all the difference in my life. It's nice to have. Um, I've got a really super supportive family uh, who I love really much, very much, but it's also nice to have a group of friends and uh, they're the people you make memories with and you do a lot of fun things. Yep. You got to have, you got to have all of that really. And I definitely recognize the, um, the need to have saved probably when I was younger too, but I've, I've had a freaking phenomenal twenties. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you bounce back from it, it is, but it's, it is uh, what it is. You know. Um, question number three, uh, name one of your top bucket list items. So it's funny because it's actually coming to fruition, but it's to hike Machu Picchu. No um, kidding. So this summer, um, there's no, five other girls awesome. and I that are, are going to hike Machu Picchu. So we're going to go at the beginning of the summer. Oh, that's so freaking cool. I'm jealous. Take lots of pictures. Yeah. it's uh, And that's another thing. The logistics of that are not easy. <laughs> it, it's not like it, there's especially getting here from new york that there's no there's no direct flights from where you have to go uh, to the small country so a small area of the country so you fly into lima um and then you take like a one hour commuter flight uh someplace else but it's uh it's you know 20 something hours of transit time to get there oh my god it reminds me of my trip to australia i studied abroad in australia for six months in college but it, you have to go from here to la then across the Pacific, and yeah. just from L.A. to Brisbane, Australia, was like 15 hours. Yeah. It's not, I mean, it's not as much time in the air, um, but it's just, there's just no easy way to get there's there. There's no easy way. Yeah. From here. I mean, if we lived in Chicago, maybe, but, or from Miami, they have direct flights, but everything is like three-hour flight here, two-hour layover, and just, you know, we also, want it. You want keeping the, the cost way. reasonable. Oh, yeah. yeah th- there's not. It's actually more reasonable than I thought, to be honest. Okay. Um, the flight is costing more than actually the trip with Sherpas and guides and everything. Wow. I'll take lots of pictures. I'll, I will. I'll be, I'll be checking for that. 
That sounds awesome. Uh, if you could, I, I, I don't know. Question number, yeah, this is number four. Okay. If you could meet one historical figure, who would it be and why? She's not really historical, but I want to meet Ellen. I love Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> so she's kind of historical because she's been around for a yeah. while. Um, but I just, there's something that's so cool about her. And she just, to me, like, um, I like that even though she has very strong political views, she's more focused on kindness. Yes. Um, she's more focused on, like, it's okay if you support somebody I don't support. We'll talk about other things. Kindness where, is infectious. Yeah. And civil discourse. Jeez, where'd just, that go? I know. And I think that's <clears> what's... I, there's just something about her that's so cool to me. And just that... Um, I think she's somebody I kind of aspire to be more like because she just is always looking for the fun side of things, the lighter side of things. And like what she's talking about is generally not anything that's super um, you know, technical or crazy. It's just like this down-to-earth basics and i just see all the good that she does and i, I like her attitude like mm. I, I just really like especially that you know she can disagree with people and it's okay she doesn't hate them instead yeah. of being like oh we can't be friends you can't be on my show she'll just be like we're not going to talk about this yeah let's talk about something else so yeah dance more in life you know? yeah i love it oh and her dance moves are hysterical <laughs> <laughs> question number five if you could put up a billboard anywhere in the world what would you put on it so I don't know specifically what I'd put on it. I know part of the slogan I'd put on it, but I'd have to put something really funny. So because <laughs> I just feel like, you know, like when you're driving and like, I feel like when you're driving, you're in one of two mindsets, maybe three. Either you're completely zoned out and not paying attention, which we don't want people to be that way. Or you're really angry because you're like, oh, I'm stuck in traffic or mm -hmm. this is going to take me five hours to get to, you know, where I'm going. Or you're in a really good mood. Like it's a gorgeous day. Your windows are down. Like so... I just feel like when you can interrupt somebody's day with something funny, it just changes the whole dynamic of everything. It makes yes. people's day better because I think especially now in the world we live in where people are screenshotting memes and you see things like yes. people like to laugh and I don't think we laugh enough. So mm. I would definitely want it to be something funny, probably a little more on the risque side, like not just the yes. uh, plain old why did the chicken cross the road type jokes, um, but like something. It. And then I don't know, one thing that's like my friends and I have always like joked about is like you know you hear like when you're a kid secrets don't make friends yeah um, and, you know you shouldn't tell secrets so like kind of our mantra is secrets don't make friends but they sure do keep them and we just joke <laughs> about that you know like we have to remain friends forever because we've just got so many secrets whether it's you know getting a limo ride or you know right. sneaking into a, a private suite at amy schumer show in albany or whatever it is so. that's awesome that's awesome last question you ready for it i'm ready for it all right we got to put together a three-person board of directors yep to guide and mentor you through the rest of your life. So who would you choose to be on your three-person board of directors? They can be alive, deceased, famous, or not. But who would you choose and why? Okay, so the first person I would choose is one of my mentors. Um, he's still alive. It's kind of a risky one because he's like 72 right now. So if it's the rest of my life, like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's hard to say. Like, I mean, but if he can still, you know, pa pass on his knowledge from the afterlife, sure. that's fine. Um, when I first met him, he gave me this awesome story of, and you know, I had just happened to be born in 1979. So in his office, he had a frame check, um, and it was in the amount of 5,200 and something dollars. And it was from 1979. And that was his very first check. And he was a, a hell of a sales guy. And he has this crazy path, just a, a, a Texan, went in the army, um, young guy, dad was a train conductor, so didn't come from any wealth. There's no oil money or anything. Grew up very middle class. And once he got out of the army, he decided he was going to go to law school, became a lawyer. And the year that he became a lawyer, he said lawyer started at $18,000. 
a year, which I think probably in 79 wasn't bad. It wasn't great. But he said a buddy of his from law school and him decided that they would they knew somebody that had this company and the sales for that company were about $80,000 a month. And the company was struggling. It was at that point, like, and it was before bankruptcy and whatnot, but like they just weren't going to make it, but they knew they had this great product. So his buddy and him that were lawyers um, wrote the contract and said, okay, we get um, a percentage of sales, anything over 80,000, but we'll help you turn around your company. Cause they all knew how to sell. They knew there was some legal jargon that could be written into contracts. that would like help the bottom line, et cetera, et cetera. So, they do it. And then um, once they get over you know, this $100,000 threshold, it goes up exponentially larger. And then when it goes up over this, it gets exponentially larger. So he said, you know, the first month they end up turning around just from easy low-hanging fruit, $100,000. So people are delighted. And when they signed this contract, they thought there's no way that like, yeah, we'll give them X percentage of sales because we'll never get there. And if we do, we'll be so happy because it's, you know, three times what we're doing now. So sure enough, they quickly within a year do it. And that's where I first kind of fell in love. Like, okay, um, you know, you, we kind of joke about this. And I don't mean to like, uh, it's going to sound negative when I say it, but like yeah. the hashtag me too. Um, I hate that hashtag for a variety of reasons, which I won't get into. But in my mind, I've changed it like hashtag me too. Like I have every chance to do this because yeah. people can do these things. And he started, you know, he was bringing home checks of over $5,000 a week in 1979. Wow. Just a boy from Texas with a law degree who said, I'm never going to be a lawyer again. I'm going to do sales and started buying up real estate in LA, doing all sorts of things. And when I started seeing these stories, that was somebody who was like, wow. And the more time I've spent with him and we're, we're very, very good friends. Um, we work together on a variety of projects that he's the person who's got that really big picture thinking. So it's really neat that he can kind of guide me through things and he's really good with the financial side and how to get the best mm. deal. So he would definitely be one person on my team. Mm. And I think the other two people, it's going to sound like a cop out would be my two kids. Um, because it would give me a chance to spend more time with them. And I also think they don't overthink things. I think as adults, Mm. we overthink everything. And um, my two daughters couldn't be more different. My youngest, her name is Myra Spicy. Her middle name is actually Spicy, and she's super, super spicy. Um, (laughs) She's very spunky, and she's just this, like, wild child at heart. Um, She's very kind. She's a good kid. But then my older daughter is just this really sweet, gentle, kind-hearted girl. And I think they'd be like the perfect mix. So I can have somebody who can help me with a plan, these two kids I could spend a lot of time with, and then they can be my doers because they're going to be much younger than me. So I think they could uh, kind of, without overthinking things, think about the things that would make them happy, me happy, our whole family happy. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to get that balance of like how much work, how much, you know, family, how much that. Yeah. It'd be neat to kind of mix them fantastic well this has been awesome thanks for having me on i had a really fun time yeah we'll have to continue the conversation and i'm going to definitely uh check the facebook for these montepichu uh when are you going again looks like the end of june end of june yeah that's coming up it is holy smokes don't worry my training plan's already in (laughs) carb load (laughs) i'll train just as, as hard for that as i did for the race yes well thank you everybody for listening in for another episode of the stories of gumption podcast Again, I'm Ryan, your host, and thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Ryan.